Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guest today is, I believe, my fourth professor on the podcast, and I think by far the most distinguished one. Uh, professor Elizabeth Loftus is the professor of psychological science and criminology, and a professor of law and society, and a professor of cognitive sciences. So, uh, Professor Loftus, uh, welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, it's, I've been a big fan of yours for quite some time. I think I first saw you at the amazing meeting, the James Randi Educational Foundation, uh, in 2014, I believe, was the first time I saw you. And then I saw you again at CSICon in 2016. And you appeared again this year at CSICon uh, in Las Vegas for the CSICon 2019. How did you get involved in uh, doing things for the skeptical community? Uh, I think I was invited to give some talks um, when I was teaching at my former university. Uh, I started talking about, you know, memory distortion and, and false memories. And, and then the organization gave me some nice award. And, uh, and then I got put on, on the board of uh, advisors or whatever they, they call mm-hmm. this board and so um, it's just a community that uh, I've spent a lot of time with. Yeah and I think uh, it, it really speaks to the quality of your work because it's, it's a topic that's very very interesting to kind of the skeptical community because skeptical community is all about uh, demanding evidence for, for extreme claims and obviously one of the claims that people bring up all the time is that they remember something happening and what your work uh, over the years has shown is that memory isn't quite as reliable as people uh, think it is. Uh, can you, what's, uh, what's the most, most famous example of, uh, of your work where, where you have uh, done something with, that really demonstrates that memory is not quite as reliable as people think it is? There are really kind of two subcategories of memory problem that, that I've been investigating. And, of course, many people understand that you could have a problem with forgetting, uh, that is, not remembering something that actually happened. But but I study the opposite, which is when people remember things differently from the way they really were, uh, or when they remember entire events that did not happen to them. Uh, and so, you know, some of the well-known examples uh, in my research are examples where people remember differently we make people uh, believe and remember that, that the car involved in the accident went through a stop sign instead of a yield sign. Well, there really was a, a, an accident, but, but the car did not go through the stop sign. So th- that's an example, and it, it's a fairly well-known example of uh, changing memory uh, for the details of an event that actually happened. But, but then years later, uh, we would ask just how far can you go with people and we would plant entirely false memories into the minds of otherwise ordinary healthy people. And one of the better known examples is our first effort to do this, which is to make people believe and remember that when they were, say, five or six years old, they were lost in a shopping mall, frightened, crying, and ultimately rescued by an elderly person and and reunited with their family. So that's another uh, example of an experimental finding that did achieve, um, you know, a fair amount of publicity and interest. 
Yeah, that's that's a very well known one, I think, and it uh, comes up a lot. The, I, I use that constantly as an example uh, of uh, of an implanted memory. Uh, with with implanted memories, you you're kind of creating a whole narrative that you give to someone. Do you give them the entire narrative, or do they fill in a lot of the pieces themselves? No, we we just give them a little a paragraphs worth. So mm. if, if you were one of my subjects. Um, I w- I'd say to you, Mick, um, you know, we've had a conversation w- with your mother. We found out some things that happened to you when you were about five or six years old. We'd like to ask you about these experiences, see if you remember any of them. And then I would uh, give you some little scenarios about true events, things your mother told us really did happen. And then I'd give you a little bit of a, a, a paragraph of about a completely made-up event that, that I made up with your mother about getting lost in a shopping mall or if you grew up and there were no malls, then in, in some big public place. Uh, and we try to get you uh, to remember these experiences. Uh, and people will not only regurgitate back the specific details that we use to plant the memory, but they'll go beyond and they'll tell us things about what the person looked like who rescued them uh, or other things they remember about the event. I I, I remember hearing my name being called over the loudspeaker. Mm -hmm. Some example like that, detail like that, that we never mentioned. So when you're implanting these memories or triggering these, these creations of false memories, obviously it doesn't happen straight away. You can't just like tell someone and they immediately remember it you you kind of plant a seed and then come back later and it's kind of grown into something else Uh, that's often what happens yes they they they, sometimes they start out gee i'm i'm not sure possibly maybe would it have been you know at this location and they try to figure it out and then we do come back i mean we might talk to them three times for example uh, in, in our original study, we found that um, about a quarter of our subjects fell sway to this suggestion and uh, began to develop a partial or complete false memory about getting lost. But I do have to say that other uh, scientists who picked up on this paradigm and planted other kinds of false memories uh, were getting really good at it because they got even hmm. higher rates of false memories than we did. So are there certain people who are a lot more susceptible to this than other people? Uh, we, we and others have looked at individual differences, um, and we, we have found things like um, if, you're, if you're someone who has lapses in memory and attention, if, if you frequently find that you can't remember whether you did something or just thought about doing it, did I mail that letter or did I just think about it, Mm. Uh, did I close the garage door or did I just think about it? Um, you're somewhat more susceptible. Um, if you are low in cognitive ability, you're somewhat more susceptible. But I do have to say that we have even studied people who have exceptional memories, superior memories about their own lives and they too uh, fall for these suggestions and develop false memories at a rate that's similar to ordinary people. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I was doing a little research before uh, before I spoke to you uh, yesterday, and uh, I came across a TED talk by a guy called uh, Scott Fraser, and 
he uh, he was talking about you know the same type of subjects, and he gave an example of uh, 9-11, uh, the collapses of the World Trade Center. And he says that he had this very vivid memory of uh, of the second tower collapse being shown over and over again on television. But then he said that was a false memory because there wasn't any footage of uh, that until the next day, until 24 hours later. However, uh, it turns out there actually was. And it turns out that what he was remembering in his TED Talk was actually a false memory that somehow he's convinced himself off. And he didn't actually realize this until later, and he had to issue a correction to this. So you've got someone who's an expert uh-huh. in memory who, who knows about all these things and still manages to get fooled by it. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, just because you study memory doesn't mean uh, you, you can be immune from these kinds of influences. Yeah, I suppose uh, you tell people you're an expert in memory. Do, do, do they assume that then you personally have a very good memory? Do they ask you to do memory tricks and things like that? Uh, usually they want to, they, they, first they want to tell me that they've got a relative with Alzheimer's or somebody mm. who has some kind of dementia and can I give them some advice for how to deal with their relative? That's, uh, that's how it often starts in an airplane conversation. And I have to say, you know, I don't study that kind of memory problem. Yeah. I study the opposite. Yeah, and false memories uh, obviously have a huge implication for uh, for trials, for, uh, for for legal issues. Uh, and you've you've been called as an expert witness uh, many times. Uh, what what are the types of things that you you tell a jury uh, when you're uh, appearing as uh, as an expert witness? Um, well, there are two types of cases that I have um, been involved in quite a bit. One would be a typical eyewitness case, we call it. So somebody is a witness to an armed robbery and sometime later maybe goes to a lineup and tries to identify the person who committed that robbery. So I might um, talk about the factors in that situation, if they exist, that could lead to difficulties for an accurate memory. How much time passed between the crime and the attempt at identifying the perpetrator. Because if it's a longer period of time, there's going to be a fading of memory. Um, Also, if there's a longer period of time, the memory is more susceptible to contamination. Then I might want to know, are you dealing with a cross-racial identification? Do you have a situation where a person is trying to identify a stranger of a different race than their own race? People make more mistakes. Then I want to analyze and know about the characteristics of the lineup. Who was in the lineup? Who were the fillers? Did they resemble the perpetrator? What kind of instruction was given to the witness before the identification was made? These are uh, amongst the many factors that are important to consider uh, because if you have a biased situation with a lot of problematic factors, then you have a situation that might be more prone to error. Yeah, and there's so, so many factors that you have to take into account there. It must be very difficult to kind of get all this across uh, to a jury. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's something that you've been studying for many, many years, and you're kind of asked to boil it down into a, to a few examples. Uh, do, do you have good success, do you think, in, in communicating these things to, to juries? Uh, I think I... I have a way of talking about the basic concepts that uh, is understandable to 
you know, lay people. Uh, sometimes uh, I have a little bit of difficulty. For example, if I want to, if I want to tell the jury that the correlation uh, between, say, how accurate somebody is and and their confidence level, um, I know the correlation is 0.25, for example, in one uh, well-known mm-hmm. paper. How do you explain a correlation of 0.25 to a, a jury that has never taken a statistics course. So occasionally there are challenges like that, needing to explain some kind of mathematical or scientific concept. But for the most part, I think people can understand uh, many of the, the, the basic concepts that I and other memory scientists try to convey during uh, a jury trial. Yeah, that, that correlation you bring up is very interesting, the correlation between confidence uh, and the accuracy of, of a memory. And people tend to assume that if someone like says something with confidence, then they're, they're more likely to be accurate. But it turns out there isn't you know, that much uh, that much evidence behind that. But you know, this is something well, we... Well, now, see, now, the, now the story there has gotten a little more complicated mm. because for years people talked about that, that one particular paper with the correlation that I mentioned. And in recent times... There is a, a kind of a, a reevaluation about the importance of confidence, um, where if if everything is ideal, if the conditions are pristine and clean, then confidence does seem to to correlate with accuracy. Um, somebody who's confident more likely to be accurate than somebody who's not. The problem is out there in the messy real world, uh, things are not clean and pristine, and you can manipulate somebody's confidence it's very easy to do that yeah i I remember uh, i had an incident where somebody jumped into my yard like a burglar was getting away from a house next door and he ran through my yard and i called the police and then they asked me to describe this person to him and i kind of actually thought back to to your talk and uh how difficult it is to have accurate memories about these types of things and i i kind of wanted to say something but i thought "Do, do i really know that uh, so you have actually had an effect there in perhaps not fingering the wrong person for this burglary of my neighbor's house. But uh, uh, yeah, it, it is surprisingly difficult to remember things about people for, for, for me, like in a stressful situation, like I couldn't remember what color shirt he was wearing or what color pants he was wearing or even how especially tall he was. So I think perhaps people, people overestimate their ability to, to remember things. I don't know about, about the overestimation. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, oftentimes when you ask people, you know, about characteristics or, you know, or even, mm. you know, how healthy are you or how smart are you or whatever, they, they lots of people, lots and lots of people think they're above average. More people think they're above average than is statistically Indeed. possible. Um, but um, what, but we do know a fair amount about the factors that can lead to mistakes. And your experience of trying to describe is especially difficult. Um, yeah. Going to a lineup and trying to identify the face you've seen before, well, in some sense, that's a little easier, but you can also be misled if it's not done properly. Indeed, yeah. I'm not sure I would be able to pick the person out. So I, I did see his face. He turned around to look at me as he, as he was running away. But, yeah, it's, uh, I'm not sure I would be able to pick him out, so I would feel very uncomfortable, you know, especially after... You know, hearing all these stories about people misidentifying other people. 
I want to talk a little bit about the, you know, some of those topics that I'm interested in are kind of conspiracy theory topics. A big one is UFOs, which is, is a conspiracy theory in a way because the people are saying the government is, is covering up uh, UFOs. But a lot of people who believe uh, that there are UFOs and that the government is covering it up, they do so because of a personal experience. Uh, they think that they saw a UFO. And they give these very detailed uh, reports of seeing a particular type of craft or something like that. Do you think that, uh, you know, what do you think the role of false memory is in UFOs? What I know a little about, um, primarily because of the work of uh, Richard McNally, a professor of psychology at Harvard, uh, is the group of people who go even further than I just saw something up in the sky. Mm. They believe that they were actually abducted by aliens and taken up on the spaceships and sexually experimented upon and then brought back to their beds on Earth. And they're a very interesting group of people. They are often intelligent and highly functioning in society. They often, um, it starts with an experience of sleep paralysis where when you're in that in-between state between, you know, sleeping and waking up, you sometimes experience a kind of paralysis, and it can be kind of frightening if you don't know what it is. Uh, they end up talking to a therapist who maybe believes in alien abduction and might hypnotize them and suggest certain things to them. But they now have a whole abduction scenario that they think happened to them. And when Dr. McNally has studied these individuals at Harvard, he finds that when they listen to their own abduction story played back to them on a tape recorder, they're highly aroused. Um, the hmm. Physiological measures like heart rate and so on are, are taken, and they are as aroused as other people might be about a, a truly traumatic experience. So they're a very interesting uh, group of people. Now, the ones who are just seeing unidentified objects and not believing they were abducted. I mean, that seems to me like an even easier thing to explain. Um, they may have seen something and then time passes. They reconstruct the story about what it, what it is and, and their story uh, has a lot of inferences and that crystallize and feel like memories. They're, they're potentially creating that story or distorting from a, an ambiguous stimulus into something uh, that's more UFO-like. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of the people I talk to who are the most passionate about it, the things that happened to them happened quite a long time ago, like five or ten years ago. And so over time, they kind of layer on uh, like more details in their memories. That can happen, and... If they are um, attending conferences where there are other, mm. which might happen, where there are other people talking about their experiences, that that can be a source of influence that affects the reconstruction of any one individual's personal story. Yeah, and, and th- th- they're very passionate about the subject, and they're very defensive when it when it comes to me questioning things like, "Did you really remember this 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 thing happening?" Now, now you talked you. A lot of to a lot of juries about this type of subject, but do you actually um, have you ever experimented with trying to uh, falsify somebody's memory? Try to convince somebody that they didn't uh, 
have this 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 event happen to them not with a group of people that you're interested in but this is in our experiments this is exactly what we have to do we've taken people through a process where we've successfully planted a false memory and now at the end of the experiment we have to convince uh, debrief them huh. and tell them guess what we deceived you and um you weren't really lost in the mall or you weren't really attacked by an animal or, or you didn't really almost drown and have to be rescued. Uh, uh, and so we, that's what debriefing at the end of an experiment is all about, trying to convince somebody that the memory that we help them create is not real. And, of course, most people accept that information um, you know, they're, they're often fascinated by the whole process, uh, and then they leave the experiment. Yeah, I, I have very, I must admit, I had very little luck uh, doing that with people who, you know, I didn't implant false memories in them, of course. They, they actually have some kind of experience years ago that has evolved into this memory. Uh, and if I try to question that at all, they get very, very defensive and say, it's, you know, I know what I saw, I think the most common thing that they tell me. Uh, this is something that happens with another conspiracy theory, the uh, the chemtrails conspiracy theory. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with chemtrails. It's the idea that these the, the the condensation trails, the white lines behind planes, are some kind of deliberate spraying by by the government. It's a surprisingly common conspiracy theory. Like you know, there's millions of people give it some credence, but where memory comes into play here is that people say they don't remember these lines behind planes ever persisting because they, they think that normally the, the flame plies by and then the, the trail just evaporates in a few few seconds or a few minutes when what actually happens is sometimes if the atmospheric conditions are right you can spread out into a cloud and sometimes like a whole bunch of them can can join together and cover the sky and they claim they never remember seeing this before um, and I think you know what it what it is is just they were never paying attention to it before, and then they do pay attention to it, and it's something that they just haven't noticed. But since it's there in the sky all the time, how can people, you know, how can you convey to people that they just haven't noticed it for twenty years, and then they, they just notice it one day, even though it was there all the time? Um, I, well, I've worked on a few cases where the key issue is why did somebody not notice something that seemed very obvious? Not your thing, but yeah. why did some? Why did a police officer not notice when um, somebody was fighting over here? And if you're paying attention over here in a different location, and, and you can be paying attention to something even that's rather innocuous, you can miss something very obvious. And the best demonstration of, of that, I think, is, do you know about the invisible gorilla? I do. That's uh, a fun one. Where you're, you're watching and you, you're supposed to be counting the passes of the players with the white shirts and you miss a, a big black gorilla that walks right through the center of the, the basketball game. That is a perfect example of how inattentional blindness, as, as we call it, mm. that you can, if you're not paying attention and you're concentrating on something else, you can miss a whole lot of things. Yeah, that's, that's a great example. I love that uh, one. I, I I was sad that I it didn't actually work on me the first time because I someone had you know told me like there's a gorilla there. Uh, I, I missed out on the experience of, but I can totally see uh, it happening. Well, uh, you can get the experience. You uh, um, 
because I saw a, a talk last summer by one of the, I went to a, a conference last summer on the psychology of magic and they brought together mm. cognitive psychologists like me and magicians to share our experiences and learn from each other. And one of the inventors of the invisible gorilla uh, started his talk um, and you see and uh, you see these uh, players playing back, throwing the ball back and forth. And I thought to myself, this is not going to work. Everybody knows about the invisible gorilla. They're going to see the gorilla just as you did. But the surprise is something else changed. <laughs> so there you are looking at the gorilla because you know about it. And the, the curtain behind these players changes colors and a big lion appears on the curtain. And people don't notice. So you, you'll be tricked into having yeah. the experience in some other way. It is quite amazing how you can miss things like this. There's another example, I think, where there's a guy giving, doing a card trick on a table and he's saying, you know, to try to spot the trick. And he, 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 uh, he changes the color of his shirt three times during the demonstration. But you don't notice that because you're focusing on, on the cards. Uh, so, yeah, there are these very dramatic examples. Do you, do you think there's, um, have you found it useful to show examples like this to people and say, look how you can be tricked and maybe you've been tricked? Oh, well, in, a, in the case, uh, I was testifying on behalf of an officer who was um, being reprimanded and potentially losing his job because he failed to report a fight that he, he, people thought he should have seen and reported. Uh, and his defense was that, look, I was concentrating over, over here, right. and that's why I, I didn't notice it and didn't report it. And we actually showed the, the gorilla. <laughs> tape to the judge who then acquitted this officer really that's uh that's quite a quite amazing yeah it's it's sometimes it's difficult to get people to watch things uh, you know I, the people i deal with are more conspiracy minded so they're very suspicious of me they think that i i'm trying to brainwash them and so when i i question things like their, their memory they think that uh i'm trying to somehow get inside their brain and uh, and mess with them so i think the more kind of neutral things that I can give them to give, give examples, uh, the better. Well, here's a thought for you um, mm -hmm. uh, on this issue that you're talking about here of not being able to persuade these um, believers, not being able to budge them. In fact, we can just brainstorm about this other experience yeah. that I've had. I have been for a long time working on these cases where, let's say a woman goes to a therapist, she's got an eating disorder, she's depressed, and the therapist says, you know, everyone I've seen with those symptoms was sexually abused as a child, maybe something like that happened to you. And there begins this suggestive process. Uh, well, let's just close your eyes and imagine who might have done this. And the woman is led to, to believe and think and even remember extensive brutalization uh, and then accuse family members, uh, ruin the whole family dynamic, uh, create a mess of a situation there. And at some point, hundreds of, there are thousands of these cases, but hundreds of these people have started to realize their memories are false. So how does that happen? They call themselves retractors. How hmm. does that happen? Well, one thing that happens is their health insurance runs out, so they can no longer go every week to see the therapist that is propping up this yeah. belief system. Um, but 
Short of that, sometimes they'll see other people on, on TV, for example, talking about how they went through this suggestive therapy process and now realize what it did to them. And they'll start to identify with another retractor. And, and I don't know whether there's anything you can learn by taking a look at some of the studies of retractors and how did they get to that point and think about whether there's any, I mean, anything, I mean, you can do, you can't take these people out of their support group. Yeah. Uh, they're probably not going to let you do that, but maybe there are some other things you can learn from the retractors. That's very interesting. I, ne- I never heard the term retractor before as, as a group. Uh, so it would be interesting to kind of see uh, what, what the common factors are there. Uh, I, I do know that uh, being exposed to people, like the conspiracy theorists, being exposed to people who were once conspiracy theorists and now are not is very useful in giving them some perspective. But it, it takes a long time for them to come around. But what were you talking about with uh, people realizing their memories might be faulty? It seems very, very similar to people realizing their conspiracy beliefs might be faulty, the way they kind of get out there escaping the rabbit hole of, of conspiracy beliefs. Uh, it's kind of, it seems like there might be some quite strong parallels there with the... Uh, the you know. Right. And, and so the, the lesson for you maybe is maybe you should have some of these former believers on your, uh, on your program yeah, I do, I do or, actually. Or I, maybe get some of your your podcast friends to interview them because you're you know, because you know, yeah. the skeptic, they're, they're you know the believers are suspicious of you. They might not listen all the way through, but you know, you, just you want to showcase and feature some of these former believers, and um, yeah, it, it, that may be a way to get somewhere. Yeah, and I, I do actually try to do that, and I, I've had a few people on the show who believe in in various things like nine uh, eleven, uh, uh, being a inside job of some sort, and the chemtrail people. I've had a few of pe- those people on, uh, and they're they're very interesting to talk to, and I think it's quite useful for other people to to view those and have some kind of uh, perspective on it. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, a, a recent conspiracy theory: is the Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, conspiracy theory saying that he he was murdered and but not not so much that part of it the uh there are people who are accusing jeffrey epstein of of uh various things that happened on his his island uh with various people uh and you know there, there are going to be people who say that either they're making it up or they're mis- misremembering it and this is a very touchy subject for a lot of people uh and i, I know you have a lot of personal experience with uh with being attacked because of your work uh on uh um, recovered memory like of childhood sexual abuse and things like that how do you uh delicately bring up the subject how do you get around this this kind of almost instant uh, rejection of of uh of any kind of suspicion of recovered memories well, that that's a long question. Mm. <laughs> You're a good question, and I'm, I'm not sure which part of it to answer. Uh, well, we'll start with Epstein. I, I have only newspaper knowledge uh, about that case, although I I am a you know a friendly um, friendly acquaintance with Alan Dershowitz, who himself has been accused of of, of abuse in the context of the Epstein right. world. Uh, he's, uh, 
written an amazing op-ed piece about how he's innocent, he how hard it is to defend yourself when you when in this especially in this climate and and I tend to believe him. Um, but again, I have only newspaper. That's just one person's uh, situation attached to Epstein. Um, I get involved in lots of cases where um, the defense says it didn't happen. Um, somebody is making an accusation. Uh, and usually I talk about, uh, are, again, are there factors in this situation that could be responsible for creating a story if the story isn't true, if it didn't happen. And I'm looking to see, was there suggestive psychotherapy? Uh, did this person uh, start reading books that suggested uh, that certain things had happened to them? Um, did this person go to group therapy and start to pick up details from other people's stories that weren't there before? Did the story change from one point in time to another? Um, looking for kind of red flags in, in the particular situation. Th then the other thing that I often do in these court cases is th there's often a prosecution expert who in one way or another is saying, I talked to the accuser and I believe her memories are real. Mm. Well, we have no business doing that uh, because without independent corroboration, you can't know whether you're dealing with a real memory or one that is a product of imagination, uh, suggestion, or some other process. So sometimes I'm involved in a, as an expert, um, in a challenge to an opposing expert's uh, misrepresentations of the science or misstatements uh, of fact. Yeah, it must be very difficult, though, to, uh, you know, say some, some woman makes uh, an accusation against someone uh, based on what she says is her memory, and uh, people are going to be defending her. And uh, if you then say, well, perhaps you're misremembering this or you're, you're kind of making things up to some degree and you've misremembered it over the years, then the defenders are going to say that's some kind of attack against this person. Uh, and they, then they're going to be personally angry at you for attacking this person. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with oh, that? With happens. That? And, you know, that happens. And, and you know, I have to, uh, you know, I try to say, even if you're dealing with a person who did abuse someone, even if there was an example of abuse, it doesn't mean that a hundred other people get to walk up to the ATM machine and say the word abuse and money should spew out. You have to look at all of these situations to, uh, to see whether you're dealing with uh, an authentic memory or one that is a product of some other or, or process. But I'll tell you, I, I, no, it's not a particularly popular um, thing that I do yeah. to study false memories or to worry about false accusations. Right right now we're in a, in a climate that people, people don't really want to talk to you about false accusations. Yeah. The, the whole thing about uh, false memories is, is relatively new in, uh, in, in, in history. Uh, and that I remember my, my mother was a social worker in the 1970s and early 80s. And she worked with uh, children who uh, w were being 
abused and had to be removed from families and they had to be like you had to send to foster families. So she dealt with that type of thing. And it was around that time that we had the uh, satanic uh, ritual abuse scare uh, where people in the media were all getting uh, up in arms about this, the idea that there was this ongoing huge amount of satanic ritual ab abuse. And the evidence for that was largely... Uh, was it uh, repressed memories and recovered memories? And, and no, that... it was because these were kiddies. The, it, the, those were th those were due to highly suggestive, mm. coercive uh, interviews of those little kids. So it wasn't I so much the, the, the days of the McMartin case and in the early eighties in California, and then uh, many other cities across the United States and other places had their own little mini McMartin. Uh, and daycare workers were being thrown in jail, and it was, you know, many of those people have now been freed, and it's a, there's a recognition of the, the, you know, that the the abuse of memory was on the part of the people doing the interviewing. Yeah, yeah. My mother was a social worker in in the UK, uh, and we had the same thing over there in in the UK with the different flavor, but essentially the same thing. Uh, so we, those those were children. Uh, I guess it must be very very different with children because they don't really have the brains are very very different and they they don't really have the same. Uh, I guess even the same concept of memory as as adults have. Well, you can you can plant false beliefs in the minds of young children, and it's fairly easy to do. There there are studies out there, some of which I've participated in, where children have been led to believe and remember that they got their hand caught in a mouse trap and they had to go to a hospital hmm. to get the mouse trap removed very detailed recollection of this thing that was just suggested to them yeah uh i was just uh, rem reminded of uh something else that I, I i did was uh i once posted on a conspiracy forum uh i think at one of your talks and uh i asked people what they thought of your talk, uh, it was just it was just a fairly straightforward one. Not so much about the, the the recovered memory of childhood abuse. It was just about the malleability of memory, and uh, they were overwhelmingly very very angry at me for posting this this talk. And I think they they really genuinely thought that I was trying to to brainwash them just by posting uh, a video of yours. Have you had much interaction with like more extreme conspiracy theorists? Uh, I'm I'm not sure what what you mean by more extreme because mostly I live in this world of of people thinking they have recovered repressed memories of years of brutalization that were allegedly buried into the unconscious and and so you know mostly I'm mm -hmm. thinking about that situation. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, perhaps uh, deal with people who are a little bit more, a uh, little bit more mm, inventive in their their recovered memories. One very very simple well, one though. One thing I do have to say is, um, if they remember, for example, you know, being abducted by an alien, or at least they're not suing ET, <laughs> like like they're suing their parents and their other relatives and their former neighbors and whatever. Um, yeah. So it it doesn't create that level of havoc in the community. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, UFOs I think are relatively harmless. Uh some of them, you know, some of the other conspiracy theories are a bit more harmful. Like the chemtrails thing, people think that they're being poisoned and so they start taking these remedies for chemtrail poisoning. 
Uh, one thing with the, the chemtrails, which was interesting, is that people say they remember that the sky was a lot more blue in the past. And I did a little bit of research into this, and I, I, I saw some studies where they said that people re remember color more vividly uh, as time goes by. If they, if they try to recall a color, it actually gets bluer and bluer with time. Is that something you've come across? I, I've never, I haven't seen, I, mean, I find that kind of interesting, but I, I'd, I'd like to see the study and know whether it was replicated. And, All right. Uh, oh, I shall, I shall send it to you because it was a fascinating thing. It, uh, and it was specifically with blue as well. Blue was one of the, the, the colors that got more vibrant uh, with time and that you know, people's uh, actually, <laughs> there's actually an explanation for why people remember this. And another uh, thing, I don't know if you've heard of the, the Mandela effect. Yes. Yeah. What do you think is, uh, what kind of psychological factors are behind that? So I'm assuming you're, you're referring to the idea that many people have a belief like that Mandela died in prison or something. Yes, and, exactly. And when in fact he didn't die until much later uh, when he was out of prison. And these, well, we could make a distinction between a belief about the world, a belief and a memory for your own personal experience. Hmm. I study people's memories for their own personal experience and how you can contaminate and distort them. I think it would be even easier to distort a belief about the world. You just need some highly credible people to utter the, the belief and utter it with confidence and give a lot of detail to it, and others, others will follow. And you don't have your own personal experience to butt against it and, and to, to, to challenge it. So the idea that uh, somebody could utter the belief and, and talk about it, convince other people, uh, yeah. doesn't seem too surprising. And that's, that's very much what I see with conspiracy theories. It's uh, you know, people are kind of having a belief implanted in the, the, their brains uh, and they think that it's backed with evidence, but that's because they've only seen like this one set of evidence that people have uh, uh, presented them. And I guess in a way it's kind of similar to uh, implanting a memory, implanting a belief. I never really thought of that before. That's very interesting. Yeah, with the, the Mandela effect, people remember all kinds of uh, strange things that they think they remember seeing, uh, but weren't actually true. And then from that, they get the idea that there's some kind of the living in some kind of alternate reality or some kind of computer matrix or something. Uh, but yeah, I was like following on from that. Uh, are there like evolutionary reasons why people do these things, these little little tricks of the of the memory? Are there like reasons why that uh, that people you know have evolved to do it, and, are, and there are ways we can actually use that? evolutionary basis of memory to help help fix it I, I, well, I can say something about that because uh, because psychologists who who study memory distortion are often asked you know why would we be created this way why would God or Darwin whatever your theory is there have created uh, our memories to be susceptible to contamination and 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 change and some of the answers that psychologists have given go like this. Well, first of all, this malleable system means that if a spontaneous error enters mm. your memory system, you can update with accurate information. 
when you learn it's wrong and this is what's right, you can update your memory and that updating ability would be valuable. Um, other people have said that sometimes a distorted memory actually is good for you. I mean, we have, for example, people in general believe that they got grades that were better than they really did, or they gave more to charity than they really did, or their kids walked and talked in an earlier age than they really did, or they voted in elections that they didn't vote in. We have these prestige-enhancing memory distortions that are very common. Why? They allow us to feel a little better about ourselves, maybe make us a little happier. And interestingly, depressed people don't do that as much. So maybe this malleable system is one that <laughs> has this kind of benefit. And then the last point, and this is a point that has really been developed by um, Dan Schachter, a memory scientist also teaching at Harvard. Um, th the same system that's involved in memory is also involved, the same brain structures and so on, in anticipating a future or anticipating different possible futures. And you do want flexibility there to be able to imagine different possible futures and plan for things that could yeah. happen. And this flexible system that works in the past and in the future might be a system that works well for good planning uh, for the future. So I'm just telling you some of the ways that I and others have talked about why would we be created with a memory that that works like this. Yeah, that's fascinating because a lot of what you were saying there kind of resonated with what I've read about people forming false beliefs, uh, especially in the conspiracy community. Like they they form a false belief in, in a way it makes them feel better about themselves. Uh, and the if people form false memories or they exaggerate their memories for, for similar reasons. It's almost kind of a little um, brain chemistry thing, like a little dopamine type type hit. If you get some kind of you know, good memory about yourself or you have formed some belief that makes makes you feel better about yourself. I think yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think there are a lot of, a lot of parallels there. I'm going to have to look into this more, uh, the parallels between uh, the malleability of memory and the malleability of... Of, of belief, uh, you know, kind of fact-based belief rather than uh, memory-based belief. Very interesting. Well, the, the, you know, the thing to keep in mind is look for the benefit. Because I, in, in yeah. my little world, I've had, people, I've had people say, who would ever want to make up that they were abused by their father if they weren't? Who would ever want to believe something so awful? There'd be no good reason why you would want to. Well, maybe there is a good reason. And the good reason is that you now have an explanation for your problems. You don't have to, you know, consider that you're a bad person or you're a crazy person. Uh, your problems are now due to the fact that you were abused. You often get a lot of empathy and sympathy yeah. and a new community to connect with um, for these beliefs. Look for the benefit. Yeah, and I see the community aspect of it uh, and the being listened to aspect of it in, in conspiracy theories as well. So there's definitely a crossover there. Uh, I asked on Twitter if uh, people had any, any questions for you. Uh, I've got a couple of interesting ones. Somebody asked, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on how imagery and information in pop culture feed into the image bank of false memories? So I suppose that's like how things that are repeated in pop culture uh, affect people's uh, memories of other things. Well, first of all, this is 
this is so cool that you can be talking to me and then someone else can pop in with a Twitter question. I, I just, this is so 21st century. I, anyhow, I'm, I'm enjoying this. Yeah. Um, pop culture and social media c- completely play a role in all this. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, the aliens that are doing the abducting, they tend to look similar. And that's because, you know, the media presentation of aliens is, is where people are getting their, their imagery. It, it's from, from kind of a common source that's out there. Yeah, somebody asked a kind of a related question. What other societally common memory errors are there from history or, or from the modern day? And I think that's about like uh, types of memory errors that are common across different societies around the world. Are, are the memory errors similar across societies or are there societal uh, specific differences in memory errors? Well, again, if I could just talk about the world I know about, and these are the, the thousands of, of people who are, are, are claiming that they have been falsely accused based on a massive repression and supposed recovery of horrible brutalization. This, this phenomenon may have started in North America, but it got exported to Europe. Mm. England, all over Scandinavia, other parts of Europe, Australia, New Zealand. And so you began to see collections of similar kinds of things going on. Psychotherapists who were using highly suggestive procedures, uh, getting people to remember things, making accusations. Um, It didn't seem to be happening so much in Asian cultures. And, And it's just an observation um, I'm not quite sure why, but you you tended to see this cropping up more in in the the countries that I've mentioned. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, uh, another culture-bound syndrome, which was a uh, whiplash. Uh, someone said that whiplash injuries don't happen in countries where you can't uh, sue the person who hit you from behind in a car. Like people get these whiplash injuries when someone hits them from behind in a car. And they're about uh, like 20 times more common in the United States than they are in Japan, even though the accident rate is, uh, is relatively similar. And uh, I think it's just simply because people are being kind of infected with this idea that if you get hit from behind in your car, you get you get some kind of whiplash injury. And I suppose you, you can kind of think of the idea of recovered memory as being a little, little uh, mimetic virus spreading around the world. It kind of started here and it kind of spread to to other countries because people's brains are similar. uh, Yes, I have thought about it that way, that, you know, the way Europe got infected is that uh, American, North American psychologists and psychiatrists were invited to go over and give Mm. speeches, and they started speaking about uh, repressed memories, satanic ritual abuse, multiple personality disorder, which is is now called dissociative identity disorder. And then you began to see these things growing. A, a little seed is planted, and it, it then grows in another part, part of the world. Yeah. Another quick question from Twitter is, uh, are there objective ways to distinguish memories of real-world events from uh, false memories? Oh, well, I'm sorry to disappoint people, but um, as... At the end of my TED Talk, I, I, I left the audience with the one take-home message that I wanted to leave people, which is just because somebody tells you something with a lot of detail, they say it with a lot of confidence, 
even they show a lot of emotion when they tell the story. It doesn't mean it really happened. Be- False memories have these same characteristics. Okay. And, uh, you can't do a brain scan or... Brain scans, you know, the false memories look like the true ones. Mm-hmm. Emotional record, uh, physiological recordings of emotional arousal look similar for the false memories and the true ones. Uh, so you need independent corroboration. And it yeah. really has to be independent corroboration. One last question from Twitter, which is actually something I'm very interested in, is has the, the notion of memory changed with modernity? Like, has historically people's ideas about what memory is and how reliable it is, has that changed over time? Were people more or less trusting of their memories back in the Middle Ages? So? Oh, I don't know about the Middle Ages, but uh, over time people have used different metaphors to, to, to talk about memory. I mean, so that, you know, they may have likened it to a, a videotape uh, recording mm. at, at some point, and then a computer. Uh, and, you know, in, in some recent presentation, I likened it to a Wikipedia page <laughs> because you could go in there and edit it, but other people can too. Yeah, it's interesting though, but the, in the olden days, people didn't have these, these analogies that they could, they could make. So, you know, now we think of, memory as being like a, a video recorder you know the the common idea of a, a visual memory or an auditory memory is a, a recording but what would people have thought of memory being analogous to back before tape recorders i'd have to go back and, and yeah. then you're back in the with the early philosophers and i'm not sure i really got a good grade undergraduate when i took philosophy it was too abstract for me yeah it's interesting though interesting well, thank you very much uh, for this very interesting conversation. Uh, oh, my pleasure. I, what, what are you working on now? Well, let's see. Um, oh, we just published a paper on the malleability of memory for symptoms. This might mm-hmm. relate to your whip, whiplash example. Yeah, that's very so interesting. So you can put people through a painful experience, for example. The painful experience we use is called the cold presser task, where you stick your hand into ice cold water for mm-hmm. 90 seconds. It's painful. You rate your pain on a 100-point scale. Let's say you gave it an 80. Later on, I come back to you and I say, now, you know, last week when you did this, and you, you told us that the pain was a 60 on a 100-point on a scale. Why did you rate it that way? What that does is people remember their pain as less than it actually was. Huh. And this is an example of how even memory for symptoms is malleable. So I... I, I see this connecting to your whiplash example if somebody is attaching a label to an ambiguous whatever you're you're feeling in your neck and says whiplash it can maybe start to hurt more than it would otherwise or hurt less i suppose uh, one of one of the differences of what's happening when you get hit from behind in the united states versus uh, say in another country Yeah, yeah that's very interesting are there ways you can use things like that uh, as therapy like for reducing the severity of somebody's symptoms? Potentially, yes. Potentially, if, if, if more work is done on this idea of the malleability of symptoms, I, I see you, maybe you can find a way to essentially remind people, even falsely, mm-hmm. uh, that the experience wasn't as bad as perhaps it really was. And maybe they have a, a softer memory uh, yeah. about it. Um, 
Now, a lot of people might object to that kind of tampering with with your memory. Even when I suggested that you could plan a false memory that you got sick eating a fattening food and people don't want to eat the food as much. And I thought this we this could be on we could be on the brink of a new dieting technique here. It still bothered people. Yeah. They don't like the idea of brainwashing those <laughs> problems by messing with their mind. Yeah. People are very, very touchy about about their minds. It's such a personal thing that's uh I think it just kind of freaks people out in a way just to think that they might not be in control of, of everything that's going on in, in their brains. Uh, I, I saw in a, an interview you did with Kerry Poppy for CSI uh, a couple of years ago that you're working on an autobiography. Is that true? Um, well, the annual review of psychology um, has a new feature uh, where they're getting autobiographies, 10,000 word autobiographies. Mm. So I, I I did write a autobiography, okay. um, you know, a couple of years ago for the annual review, um, and I did a, I did one for a book uh, book chapter ten years ago. I think both of those are posted on my University of California Irvine website, so people who might want to read them help yourself if you Great. if you want to. No, I was looking for it on Wikipedia. I thought it was going to be a you know autobiographical book, uh, not on Wikipedia or on uh, on Amazon, but uh, nothing was there. But uh, yeah, it'll be very interesting. I'll, I will I will check it out. All right. Well, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to to finish with? No, I think. But I I would say, you know, even better than reading the autobiography, Slate dot com mm. did a long article called "The Memory Doctor." And the author of that article, he spent about maybe a year researching and writing it. It's a huge article, The Memory Doctor, and it takes you through 40 years of my life and and research and thinking and and applications. And what is so beautiful about Will Salatin's article is he won a prize for this article, the best online reporting in science for the year it came out. So it got vetted for accuracy, it got vetted for his writing, and he won this this big prize. So usually I say, if you want to read something, I and I have a link to Salatin's article also on my UCI website. Yeah, that's great. I, I will put a link to it uh, in the show notes for this podcast episode. Okay, well, uh, once again, we're coming up on an hour. And uh, this has been a very, very interesting conversation, giving me a lot to think about. And uh, uh, I'd like to just thank you very much again for, uh, for doing My this. My pleasure. Great talking to you. Mm-hmm.